You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience. If you enjoy the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, and really, who wouldn't, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. For this podcast, we need to go on a bit of a journey first before we get to the meat of the conversation. The podcast features the music of composer Paul Miller and the thoughts of Voce Choir director Mark Singleton, whose conversation recorded a few weeks ago in central London was invigorating, fun and thought-provoking. And moving. We should start with the word moving. Because in the sleeve notes for Miller's latest Signum release entitled Blessing, there is on the first page a statement written which I now learn is spoken by the Voce Choir before rehearsals and concerts, a call for unity ahead of a moment of creative expression. And it's a statement which frames the memory I have of the podcast recording itself. Serve harmony, evoke its spirit and free yourself of discord. Dedicate yourself to your ensemble, your section, and your neighbor. Be the embodiment of cooperation. Listen, connect, and fulfill your duty to the music, the team, and all those who hear you. Such is the substance of greatness. Such is the foundation of harmony. Beatitudes is one of the pieces on the new Signum release. Miller's musical language is modern, accessible, and, as you would expect for music written for a choir that invites harmony, it's also inclusive. It's not sentimental, but heartfelt. It doesn't wear its heart on its sleeve, but offers refuge in a way that no other new music I've heard recently achieves. And such unexpected revelations prompted me to explore further into Miller's considerable list of works, including this gem a euphonium concerto on the Shandos label recorded by the BBC Philharmonic and released in 2018. (laughs) ¶¶ 
And then there's this, Now Sleeps the Crimson Petal, released as part of the Military Wife project a few years back, this performed by Tenebrae, which I believe, along with its A-side track, also written by Mila, features in the Military Wife film released last month. Here's the thing, I was unaware of Paul Miller and his work until this interview. Vocha Choir's Creed consolidated not only the recording experience, a conversation which started with how Mark and Paul met, but it also triggered a path of discovery of unfamiliar works. That is the kind of serendipitousness, if that's a word, I absolutely adore. And that's bound together in the idea of what harmony can mean and how it can underpin our day-to-day experience. That, for me, is a deeply powerful experience to be able to have just by sitting in a meeting room in an office in central London, speaking to a composer and a conductor about their work. It's the kind of thing you just want to shout about. one at uh, New York City. I um, was there to meet Paul. Um, there was a debut of Jubilate Deo at Carnegie Hall. And um, I was sitting about two box seats away from you. And then it just so happened that you and Thomas went to the same bar restaurant that uh, my wife and I went to. I said, hey, that's Paul. He was still in his tux. Uh, Thomas was still in his tuxedo. And so we just said hello at that point because we had already scheduled a meeting for the next day. And then um, the fun part of that story is 
that the meeting was a lunch meeting and we were both sitting in the hotel lobby thinking we were staying at the same hotel because we were on the same street and indeed we weren't and so we were about 20 30 minutes late in connecting up <laughs> i was i but, thought but for your sure. definition of the word date is different from from yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That, it's different. I mean, you, you happen to be at an occasion together. Yes, you it was not a date. Yeah, no, indeed. Yeah, I mean, just so that we're clear. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, I mean, it, it, are you talking about romantically? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that is what he said. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a romantic date. It wasn't, it wasn't romantic. you were late. I was late, and, right. and, but we just didn't, simply didn't realize that we were in two different locations. And so we started, you know, emailing back and forth. And then what ended up supposing to just an hour meeting, we just hit it off. And we did, and we chatted about everything, um, and it was it was really really really. Cool. Uh, what do you what do you recall connecting together well, yeah, on? Yeah, we'd already connected obviously through uh, emails and stuff like that. But um, you know what it is when you start talking to someone and they just suddenly you you get what they're talking about uh, musically and artistically, mm-hmm. um, and it's almost as if you, you kind of know what's going to someone's going to say, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, you'd heard some of my stuff and wanted to do a concert, and that's what we were talking about. Um, and the pieces you were talking about and how you were talking about them is exactly how I would have talked about them. So I just thought, well, I've got to work with this. Guy. So he was reflecting back what you had created. Yeah, yeah. How which lovely. Was interesting through words, you know, which was good. And so, um, of course, I'd heard of the choir of Uche because a good friend of both of ours, the American composer Morton Lawrence, had told me about them, said, you need to check these guys out. So, so I went on to YouTube, you know, the usual thing. And, uh, and heard and oh, where yeah, artists so, are not paid for what you're saying and it was uh, so I just the sound of this choir is not like any other choir that I've ever heard and I've worked with lots of choirs and so and I just knew it was exactly right for my music uh, what did you hear of the choir I mean that's quite some shining endorsement yeah, which is, is also in the booklet yeah. I've read the booklet and listened to the album yeah. um but what exactly, you know, lots of people say those things. Yeah. What do I you mean? I don't say those things. I've never said that. No, before. and I'm not, not <laughs> suggesting that you're just <laughs> throwing compliments around willy-nilly. I'm just, uh, I'm just being a typical cynical yeah, journalist and going, actually, what is the, what is the, the nub of that particular endorsement? Well, Mark can talk through the, the kind of technical aspect, if, if you want that, but in terms of the, uh, the emotional aspect of it, which, which hit me, is um, they don't belt... You know, as in shout sing, which quite a lot of choirs do. Mm. It's all sort of octo, it's all under the voice, it's very gentle. So even in the fortissimo sections, or the forte fortissimo sections, it's it's controlled, it's measured, um, they know each other really well, there's a, there, there's a warmth among the group of people which shines through in the sound. Um, and I was just really taken with it. Um, and it doesn't sound, because I grew up in the English core tradition, I went to the cathedral school, and I love that sound, don't get me wrong. Doesn't sound anything like that. How is it? uh, Okay, this is what happens in these podcasts, unfortunately, (laughs) because people say things and they go, "Hang on." Um, uh, So, uh, uh, the English choral tradition. How would you characterise the difference? Yeah. So, I grew up. You know, I was at Saint Asaph Cathedral in North Wales. I was choir boy and then became a singer. So, I sang in the services. So, that cathedral tradition, Mm -hmm. the church tradition, um, which is uh, very, very good in this country, of course, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know, Mm -hmm. and. uh, has a particular each choir sounds different of course but there's a particular type of English vowels that we use even in Wales and Scotland they tend to use those similar vowels whereas in America it's very very different because each part of each state the vowels are completely different oh. um, and so the pieces can sound completely different because of the different vowel shapes and stuff um, and uh, I was very much attracted to Boche's, um approach to that um, because it was 
so different but complementary to what I'd grown up with. Is that is that a deliberate thing? I mean, is that like a is that a musical perfor- or a performance decision on your part, or is that just because uh, I'm going to sound quite crude here? The accent in that particular state is different, and so that will just bleed into the performance. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, not quite. Oh dear. Uh, uh, <laughs> however, you know we have five different regions of the country represented in the choir, right, which okay. all have distinct accents. And so when you're talking about an ah vowel in all those different regions, it is a very different way of forming it. And so when you get together as an ensemble, you've got to find something that is the common denominator of what we have decided the ah vowel is. And that can be very different than what uh, Texas does or Minnesota does or San Francisco. And so we just kind of went with it. But one of the advantages of that is that you get to hear from other people about, well, this is why I learned it this way. And so you grow in that. And sometimes the choir as an ensemble will just, hey, that's that's a cooler ah vowel. So it's a consensus then? Oh, it's all consensus. Uh, but is that a, I'm sorry to be really nerdy about this, is, is that a directed consensus or is it something that is just naturally arrived at? Well, generally the singers will tell me, you know, this is what we think. This is what we think that the E vowel, is it a bright E? Is it a muted E? Is it more Germanic? And so we often discuss as principles because we have principles in the choir. So we'll get together and we'll discuss these things after we've listened to the recording of one of the rehearsals and then we'll make a, a, a congruent decision. But generally that's, dis- and then that's disseminated to the other people in the section. They work on the sound and that's how it's born. Tell me about the choir and when that was set up. It was set up in 2006, and at that point it was a very different choir. Um, We began to start honing in on the voce sound in 2009 when we started working with Morton Lordson, and then it has completely transformed since that time. Uh, There is, when I read in the program notes, there is a creed that you read at the beginning, that you say at the beginning of rehearsals, and... Um, I'm trying desperately to open the, open the case, but I can't. Um, that you say at the beginning of rehearsals, which is really quite touching. I read it this morning, and I was quite surprised uh, about the effect that it had on me just reading it. That's good hearing. Can you, can you tell me something about... Well, can you tell me what the creed is? It's serve harmony and the various aspects of that, because you have to give yourself to the person next to you. And you have to trust that the person next to you is working just as hard as you are. And if you have that trust between the two people and the other person on the other side of you, then you begin to trust each other as a section. And then if that section trusts that we're all doing something that we want to do and we're doing it just simply for the music, to make the music spectacular, that just spreads throughout the choir. But it doesn't stop at the choir. Because when you are deliberately saying we have let everything political, uh, any agenda has been left at the door, particularly ego, then you can start to build on something that's entirely different that we believe the audience notices. But at the core of the message is that the audience is actually a part of it. It's not that we sing to them they are a part of the process if we indeed live up to that creed of serve harmony. Uh, are you able to recite the creed? Would you mind doing that? Uh, certainly. Oh. <laughs> I'll give you that. <clears throat> serve harmony. 
evoke its spirit and free yourself of discord. Dedicate yourself to your ensemble, your section, and your neighbor. Be the embodiment of cooperation. Listen, connect, and fulfill your duty to the music, the team, and all those who hear you. Such is the substance of greatness. Such is the foundation of harmony. I, I, hearing it read out, actually, just uh, there, there is a universality to it, uh, which is really striking for me. And what resonates for me particularly is that it goes beyond singing. You know, it, actually, you could apply that to any environment. Um, and I think I probably find it quite calming as well when I read it or when I hear it. How did that, how did that get developed? Well, Tom Cook and I met with um, a dear friend of his, a, a friend of his, and um, he said, Mark, you need to develop a vision, a creed for yourself and for the ensemble, but it cannot be long. It has to be something that is as condensed as you possibly can. So, of course, the first time you draft something, it's a page and a half, <laughs> and you start whittling it down, and what are the bare bones is of what I'm talking about. And of course, we're living at a time, and I, I didn't write this more than three years ago, we're living at a time where anger and discord pervade the entire world, and this idea of retracting into oneself, which is the opposite of what you're trying to do when you're a choral singer, when you're a human being. And it just, Came, it blossomed, Florida. It bloomed out of that. And so when we sing, when we perform concerts, it's an invitation into that idea. And so when people walk away from those events, they don't often talk about, hey, I just went and heard um, a Paul Mueller concert performed by Voce. They walk away talking about an experience they had. How do you respond to that as a composer? I mean, I, I, my assumption is is that it would be impossible not to write with that kind of vision in mind. Absolutely, because as a composer, you're trying to draw into the darkness and, and, and create harmony out of nothing. Mm. Um, and so if you have a group of people who, who also want to do that with you, because of course the composer is a member of the choir as well, um, it's magical when that happens. It doesn't always happen, of course, as you know in life, um, but it, it's, it's, it's very beautiful when it does. Um, and then it affects you. So then you write differently um, from the, the shared experience. It's like a circle. And how did you write differently? <clears throat> well, you hear, you, first of all, you, there's the warmth that comes through that, mm. um, which then um, you want to try and capture in some way in your own work and try and hone and develop. So things that may have influenced the choir's singing of something, they then do something else which then influences me to change something and that kind of thing. And I'm writing a piece for them at the moment, which um, we hope to do pretty soon, um, in which this whole CD is washing around in my head. And uh, I think uh, it'll be a piece that is a kind of apotheosis of, of what we've been. Thinking. So it's an iterative creative process. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, you said that you that the composer is a part of the choir. Yeah, I've never heard that before. No. <laughs> do you agree? To, do you do you agree with that? Absolutely. Right. It, part of the reason we met before. I mean, this meeting is just a genesis, and the first concert is just Genesis chapter two. What we're trying to do is develop a relationship with the human being, 
And when that happens, all these tiny intricacies begin to appear. And the choir becomes vulnerable, I become very vulnerable. The composer, I think, becomes vulnerable at the same time. And when you're sharing in that intimate way, then you're actually completing, if not lifting up the process of why we are here as musicians. Uh, you talk in very spiritual terms. Absolutely. But I don't, but I, but I experience it or I hear it as a, uh, a spirituality, not religion. I mean, I, 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 as in it's, it's not based in faith necessarily, as in it's, it's, a, it's a universal message and a universal mm -hmm. experience. Am I, am I right in that assumption? I think so, yes. I, I, I think it's more Zen than anything else. It's, it's kind of a calming idea. You settle yourself into this position. And where does that, for you, where does that vision originate? Because it's, it's, it's a distinctive experience. My first rea reaction is that it was reactionary to what was going on around me. However, when I look back at my career, it was all building up to that point. And we had this gestalt uh, in the United States, but I think it's worldwide, where discord was pervading everything. People were angry just for being angry, anger's sake. And when I thought of myself as someone who just simply does choir, choral music, how can this possibly be? Because we are the representatives. We are the people that come from all different faith backgrounds, beliefs, conservative, liberal, all these different things. But we don't need that in there. We can, we can be friends. We can be holding hands, I don't want to get too generic and too cheesy, but we can be holding hands and not worry about any of that other stuff. Are we actually singing? Are we actually performing Paul Mueller? Are we actually unified? How do you go about challenging the choir? Because I, I, I get the I get the scenario and I think it's I think it's utterly gorgeous. I think it's an utterly gorgeous thing. But I also I sort of have this idea that it would be really um, it would be really easy to avoid challenge in writing. So so do, do you see how, in that iterative creative process, how do you also go, No, actually I want I've you to be worried, doing this? I've never worried about that. I think because oh, okay. there's some very, very uh, you know, when you get a choir like this and uh, as we started off by saying there isn't really another choir like this. You can really give them anything. They, you, they, what's the challenge? The challenge is the emotion. They mm. can sing anything, you know. So there's a couple of pieces on this album that, that, that are very hard and never get performed by anybody. Are there? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are. Yes. Really? <laughs> Which ones are they? Uh, they, they? They never get done. Uh, very rarely get done. Right. They're so technical. One of them is to seek where shadows are, mm -hmm. which is a choral cycle of three very tricky movements. Um, and they're tricky in different ways. One of them is tricky because it's just the whole compass of the choir all the time. So they're not like, they're, uh, you can't see this on the podcast, but they're not kind of uh, like this as they would be. They're like this, you know, long uh, arms spread out kind of thing. Um, then there is um, another movement which is, because it's so long and, and, with, and long lines, you've got to have a different technical ability to, to keep those lines. And then the last movement um, is just a richness of tone that has to come through. So all technical challenges... Um, did you seek to 
So I'm interested in understanding why you yeah. did that. Was it was the impetus for doing that to to introduce that challenge, or was it that you had a statement that you wanted to make? It's quite That's deep, isn't it? No, I'm it's sorry. A, it's a very good question. Thanks. It's, it's different each time because sometimes you know you, you get a commission and you, you know it's going to be a good choir. And okay, I can go all out here but sometimes that's just the music you want to write um, and you mm. hope that the choir will mm. will adapt to it and, and get it um, and I remember when I sent that piece to, to Mark for consideration uh, for this from the concert uh, he went wow Paul this is mad <laughs> that's the end of my life. literally I'm like, do you mean <laughs> for the baritones at lightning oh. speed to be singing a G sharp while the tenors are singing a G yeah. yes is that, that's the second movement yeah. isn't it yes, that's where there's a sort of an, uh, a, a weird yes. sort of background alternating thing And he said, unfortunately, yes, this is exactly what I want. And so we began... I mean, it could have been a really awkward moment if you'd, if you'd said, actually, no, this is not what I wanted. It was a mistake. Well, that does, that does happen. You know, sometimes uh, okay, you write right. something. I mean, not with Mark, it does, but sometimes with other... You know, I've written something and the guy's just... Uh, uh, this case, a guy has just said, we just literally can't do that. Oh. So this is what we can do and send an alternative and then we kind of compromise in the middle. Because there's no point in writing something that can't be done. Well, you, you, you have revealed an assumption on my part, which is I would just want to make people suffer. Really, if I was a this, composer. I've got to say, that, that this movement that you're talking about, um, that we're talking about here, uh, that, that is something that every conductor who's done it, of the people that have done it, all said to me, can we just not do that movement? <laughs> but they, what, what they miss is there's the joy. Yeah. The, the part of the, you're actually laboring over a piece what is it how long is, it's two, two minutes, minutes 55 yeah two, three minutes long and it's going to take hours yeah. <laughs> to really get into the body as a, someone who practices and um, and so but when you do it right you that's what he envisioned that's what he wanted so okay, technically now I hear yeah. now I hear those lines now I see the frenzy the chaos you know the love the, the joy of it and so when when that happens, you're like as a, a someone who says, "Oh, you know, I wish it just had been a little bit more easy to do this fast." <laughs> Your face says it all. That's in like, yeah, no. <laughs> but but when you understand the direction behind it, and when you understand the outlying movements, I, I don't understand how you cannot do the entire cycle. To be perfectly honest you have to do one two and three because it is a journey to the end and if you don't have that middle movement i know it's really really hard um but you would be making a mistake i believe because the third movement which is a, a setting of in the bleak midwinter oh. the rosetti um well everyone loved, no, that, everyone loved you only have to say it <laughs> just, yeah. that's the one that, fix that, that, on the floor the, the audience is just absolutely love 
because it retouches people. But that doesn't make as much sense until you've had the second movement before it. So you've struggled in the second movement, and then suddenly you get the release of the third movement, which is tuneful and relaxed. And, and Passed her off. Yeah. So there's a tension. Yeah. So you, you, there is a tension in the second movement, yeah. which is resolved by the. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just for the technical it's, it's very resolved. <laughs> it's, it, it is a cigarette afterwards. Oh. <laughs> I mean, okay. it really. I'm mixing it with. gone through this and it's technically hard to conduct as well yeah, I'll, I'll say that um, and because it has to stay at the same tempo there is no fluctuation retardandos anything like that but then once you get once you cross that finish line it's like I've done something here I feel really good about myself and then you get <laughs> you get the orchestra yeah the choir becomes an orchestra and it's it's such a sound that opens up and literally the audience you can watch them whether okay okay I'm listening to the second movement and then you hit them with the first three measures of in the bleak midwinter and then it's it, it literally it, people start to crumble yeah. I mean they just kind of fall over in their seats wow there's uh, a okay. magical moment in the rehearsal. I, I agree with you. <laughs> By the way, I'm not, I wasn't being flippant. In the rehearsals, I mean, um, oh, I, yeah. I, I went out to, um, uh, to the rehearsals, and I, well, of course. And, um, and the funny thing, just with, the, with us lot, all in the, in the church uh, rehearsing, you know, um, the choir's crying. Uh, you don't know that's going to have that impact when you're writing it. So I didn't sit down to write a piece that's going to make people cry. I didn't, how can you? So I just wanted this particular sound, and of course that text itself, if you fully understand it, would make you cry, wouldn't it? Well, what is the reaction then when you've written something that you didn't intend to have people cry in response to? What, what, yeah. as, because you are an architect of triggering an emotional response. What is that like? Oh, it's, for, it's very for you? unusual, because especially when you're not expecting it. Um, it's really funny because Mark and I were chatting yesterday, um, and often the pieces of mine that become the most successful are the ones that I never thought would be. <laughs> and the ones that I thought would be successful never are. Mm. <laughs> it's not that you sit there and think, yeah, I'm going to work a successful piece, because how can you, you know? Um, but it's really funny what touches audiences, and you but can't predict a, it. Is there an element of you, I'm pushing you on this, I suspect you're not going to answer it, but is there an element of you that sort of goes, good, they've cried. Uh, not good they've cried, but good they've got it. You write pieces which you get as a, as a writer, of course, and then people just don't get it. And I've done that loads of times. Um, but then when you do, and I've got to say, there are a few, um, there are two particularly on this album which I don't think we've ever done without people crying. It's In the Bleak Winter and my setting of the Beatitudes, which are Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, which are some of the best words said by anybody at any point ever, um, all about what, uh, 
the beauty of what the actions that you do if your goodness um, uh, this is the reward for that goodness you know blessed are the merciful so they shall see mercy which is such a beautiful line isn't it anybody who's ever needed mercy will tell you once they get it you know you know how wonderful it is um, and so when the, when the choir do that I mean every time yeah, every single collapse. time my mother um, she, she attended the concert when we were doing um, when we went to New York to actually give the concert and she had never heard the Beatitudes set in such a way. And when you present it with such a... Matthew. It, when you present Matthew in a gentle way, and then you get to the word rejoice, the heavens break open. And I remember in uh, St. John the Divine, when we got to that rejoice section, Everybody could feel it, and all the way back to that sanctuary that's like 500 yards long. Which I should say cathedral, but it's a funny, it's a it's a wonderful text. Of course, everybody knows the text. Um, but what I hope so. often don't, don't <laughs> people have heard it at some point. Yeah, if they're not religious, and you don't have to be, of course. Is that um, where's it heading? That text, because yeah, mm-hmm. you get the, you get the pulse of you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, 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 the so it's blessed every single line, mm-hmm. and then suddenly. You get rejoice and be exceeding glad for this is what awaits you. It's a form of rhetoric. Yeah, mm. because it's a repetition of the word blessed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't. I don't know where I yeah. pulled that from, but that was, right. that was really That's exactly. Yeah. I'm really pleased with myself. So right. every, but it is, yes. every setting I've heard of it, no one has ever gone towards the rejoice. They have not. No. Perhaps maybe somebody has. I just don't know. So I decided this piece would be a build up to that. So because the the piece is incredibly quiet until that it's often sometimes some composers will go the opposite direction yeah. when you get to rejoice it's this solemnity yeah. which I don't understand you know I trolled Paul um, before we <laughs> did, did, did you? yes before <laughs> right. before we met okay. for the first time Okay. and I found this obscure little clip um, on YouTube of you conducting um, the Aberdeen Choir Yeah. and you were in somewhere in France and I think the thing had maybe you know, 25, you know, views at that point. And I'm like, oh, it says the Beatitudes. I, I didn't know he had composed the Beatitudes. When I first heard that, I said, this is the headliner. This is the piece that we're going to do. Um, are they works which are uh, intended to be used in services? Or is it is it a concert environment that... Either. That they're, uh, yeah, okay. either. I mean, some pieces mm. on here are, are you generally imagined liturgical. Um, but but almost all of them are concert pieces, um, and the thing I say, you know, I, I am a man of faith, not a particular of spirituality, and people often ask me, do you have to be spiritual to understand these? Pieces? I'm really glad I didn't ask you that question. No, <laughs> but they do. But it's a good question. I mean, it's a perfect question. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, um, everybody is spiritual to a certain degree. Um, I have a very good friend of mine who's a devout atheist um, and hates religion, absolutely hates it. But he's the most spiritual person I've ever met, you know. Um, and so, um, what do you observe then? Can you just explain that that apparent contradiction? He's a devout atheist, but he is spiritual. <laughs> I'm going to need some help with that one. Well, it's he gets things that are that are that. How's the best way to explain? For example, music. He's a musician, so he'll be crying to stuff like this because he sees the humanity in it, um, or he sees you know the beauty of the earth in it, and so his spirituality is of a natural. Okay. Thing. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Yes, I do. Um, okay, right. And so uh, he gets that from this. And, it's, it, I, and I ex- explain to him, as I explain to other people who ask me, is that 
when you go to hear, um, you know, uh, a Brecht play, you don't suddenly become a communist at the end of it, you know. Um, so if you're, if you're, <laughs> do you not? Some people do. That's fine. I'm not bothering. Wouldn't bother me at all. But if, um, but still, you go in and hear a piece, you don't suddenly become a Christian or anything like that. You can, if you're not one a Christian, you just enjoy the beauty of it as a, as a, as an artist. Yes, I hear, I hear textures and yeah. certainly. Um, what I respond to in the second movement of To Seek Where Shadows Are is this sort of uh, it's almost it's almost like my glasses like I need a better prescription on my glasses yes. because yeah. I can sort of can sort of hear something going on I'm not entirely sure yeah. I mean I realise I'm not selling it by no, 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 I get it you. this way I get but, but that that I think you you said that one one section was singing a G natural, another section was singing a. And G that's sharp. everywhere. That's everywhere through all the sections of that particular movement. And 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 the effect when you're listening to it, certainly on on headphones, is a sort of a. Uh, it's a what is that? Yeah. I'm not quite sure what that is. And so you end up focusing in on. Yeah. Um, so I I find myself responding to the textures and the. Uh, the queries. There's a there's a certain amount of curiosity yeah. that it triggers in me. It's funny because the three the three poems in that in that piece are all by by Christina Rossetti, mm-hmm. who I absolutely adore her, her poetry. Absolutely love it, and everyone will know her in the bleak midwinter, but they probably won't know these other poems. So she had very interesting ideas on love. So they're three love songs, really. Um, and so the first one is about someone who has passed away and the the love and loss that is, and the second one is about about two lovers, you know, and that. True love does not run smooth, you know. Um, it's a jarred journey, isn't it, where yes. things go wrong. And, you, um, and I just thought, you can't suddenly have a, 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 a kind of big avitude in the middle of a whole lot. There has to be tension. There has to be thorns on the rose, isn't there, to make the rose more beautiful. Is um, that what the G and the G sharp yeah, is? Yeah, that's it, they are. And then, of course, you get the final one, which is um, uh, a, 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 a in the Blickwood Winter, which is a, a love of a, a faith love, a spiritual love itself, mm. um, which is the final line, which everyone knows, what can I give him? I give my heart, which is the last line. So, so there are the three looks at different types of love. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one other thing I need to ask you about, uh, which is the track which is already available, um, uh, which is Let All the World in Every Corner Sing, which when I saw the title, a, a little bit of me shuddered because it took me right back to uh, the school that I went to, yeah. uh, and I think it was the title of the hymn book that we that we oh. sang from, and so mm. I was transported back to the cover, which is a picture of the Earth from space, uh, and, and it just made me, made me go, oh. um, you know, really really painful school assemblies where people sort of half-heartedly say, obviously this is not what. <laughs> Tell me about that setting. Yeah, it's. Um, I was drawn to that. two friends of mine, um, Tim and Wendy Parsons, uh, who are um, 
choral singers in 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 uh, Kent in Maidstone and uh, the Folkestone, sorry, and they they um, they commissioned a piece from me. They wanted a celebratory piece uh, to be performed in Canterbury Cathedral that would get everybody that's been involved in this day of singing to sing. Um, and they said, you know, find a text that you can and write a piece about that. And I I just turned to that text because it's. Let everybody all over the place come and sing. No matter who you are, your colour, your race, your anything, come along um, and sing. I just love the words. And of course, they've always been set, apart from Vaughan Williams, rather drearily. The Vaughan Williams. You do understand. Yeah, I do. But the Vaughan Williams, of course, is fantastic. But um, so I thought I'm going to do a real, um, a real a kind of um, dancey piece. Um, and so the organ part just goes nuts at the beginning, and, there's, uh, and then at the end, at the, towards the end, um, everyone starts playing bells, and the cathedral yes, bells yeah, start yeah. ringing, um, and so it ends with the cathedral bells yeah. ringing. So it, it, it's complete opposite to all of the dreary ones that we that we we normally know. And that was a deliberate decision. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I don't absolutely. want it to be dreary. <laughs> so I people needn't be, be afraid. No, they, they need to fast forward on that one in the album. <laughs> Uh, uh, that's been really useful. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that either of you would like to say that I haven't asked you? Would you repeat the question? <laughs> I'm, I'm still thinking Where of were let you? all the world and the bells. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you would like to say that I haven't asked you? You alluded to the sound of the choir at the very beginning of uh, the podcast. As far as color is concerned, I would answer that we paint in pastels. When Paul was talking about the sound of the English choir, I, I'd say that's more of an oil painting, in my opinion, and I love, I love it, and I want to make that very clear. The reason I heard of Paul was because of Nigel Short and Tenbury. Um, but, but when it came to looking at his music and hearing his music, I thought, what if? What if instead of going after these low Bs and saying, our basses are going to be profundo, they're going to be Russian, and instead dusting them and almost making them a light purple hue, mm. and then at the very top a light green hue, what would come out of that? And what would come out of instead, because you literally write parenthetical mm. on the Bs, so they're optional. They're not on some of them. They're not required for the choir to, to do it that way. So I said, well, let's, let's try it this way. And what came out of that was a completely different Paul than I had heard mm. in another way. And so when we talk about the evocation of the spirit and, and when you color in pastels, and here we have a, a marvelous English composer coming to experience this, I didn't know what to think because I'm giving him a sound that's very, very different than, than what I had heard in other albums before, what I had you know, perused on YouTube. So as soon as we worked together on it, I began to understand we're moving in the right direction. You know, not all composers are gonna like what we do as an ensemble. That's, that's very, very clear. But I felt in some way with our meetings, with my meetings with Paul, that he's, he, he may actually find something new in all of this. Mm. And so when you hear this album, um, and certainly people are gonna judge it by the sound of the choir, no question. But I ask them to think about that there's no shame 
and not trying to impress. There's no shame in not trying to show you. There is great positivity that comes from... Why don't you come with me for a little bit? Let's take a walk. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. If you enjoy it, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. <laughs>